Hello and welcome to the NLA podcast with me, Richard Blanco. Today I'm discussing the proposed abolition of Section 21 with NLA Director of Policy and Practice, Chris Norris. The government consultation has been ongoing since the 21st of July and continues until the 12th of October 2019. In particular today, we're going to be looking at the findings of a new report by Capital Economics, which looks at some of the potential economic impacts of abolishing Section 21. A reminder for listeners that Section 21 is the no-fault eviction process that landlords can use in England and Wales. The alternative to Section 21 is Section 8, which is where the landlord has to prove certain grounds for repossession. And if a case then goes to court, the outcome will either be mandatory or at the discretion of the judge. Abolishing Section 21 will mean that new tenancies will be open-ended, as opposed to the typical 6- or 12-month assured shorthold tenancies which are common today. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the consultation and um, some of the detail that we've seen in there and that people are being asked to to comment on. There have been some changes to Section 8 that have been proposed in the consultation. So, for example, a new ground where the landlord... Uh, if they're selling the property, they mm-hmm. could try and uh, uh, take the property back. Um, also, extending the ground around the landlord moving back into the property, so it That's doesn't right. necessarily have to be the landlord, it could be another member of the family. Um, there's a concession on Ground 8 rent arrears where uh, that ground will still be mandatory if the tenant were just one month in arrears at the hearing. That's right. And some people have argued, actually, that some of these changes are pretty positive and maybe they are enough mitigation to kind of mean that losing Section 21 isn't so terrible after all. Well, they're positive. I mean, it's all about context. I mean, if, if we were debating changing Section 8 and Section 21 hadn't been mentioned... Um, absolutely, I'd say these are steps in the right direction. Don't forget that the Schedule 2 grounds, the grounds we talk about all the time, the, the Section 8 grounds, are 30 years old. So you know, it's about time they were updated a little bit. We've had a bit of ASB you know, focus thrown in over the years. We've had one or two tweaks. But it is about time that we look at them again. And we, are, we do look at things like selling property and whether the pre-disclosure grounds, the grounds you've got to tell people about at the beginning of the tenancy, really work well. Um, so they're a step in the right direction, I, it's an interesting question about whether they actually mitigate the risk of taking away Section 21, though. Um, I mean, they, do, they do some of the job. You know, we know that landlords don't just throw people out because they want to. They, throw, you know, they don't throw people out at all. Um, but they, they might repossess a property because they want to sell. They might repossess a property because they want to move in. Um, and that's great, but it's, it's only an answer if the system works. And I think the real disappointment we've had about the consultation, and we've encouraged all of our members to talk about this when they respond to the consultation, is it barely mentions the court service. And you know, this, is, this is the framework, but if there's no mechanism, there's no court to push it through, it can't possibly do what we need. Yes, there have been some reforms in Scotland, haven't there? Do you think um, you know, they should give us any grounds for optimism? Oh, Scotland's fascinating. I mean, to begin with, it's, it's difficult to compare because it's a comparatively tiny market. So the, the volume of cases that get heard um, are much, much smaller. And it's new. You know, this only came in, in, into force a couple of years ago. And most of the tenancies that are in place now are still the old shorter-short tenancies. They're equivalent of the... People of the are clinging on to them for dear life. For <laughs> good reason, I think. And I, I'd expect to see something similar in England if this all goes ahead. Um, but they did a couple of interesting things. So they replaced their sheriff court system completely with tribunal. And that's a tribunal that's free to access. So there's none of these fees that you know, you know get landlords down all the time. Um, 
there's some question marks about capacity. And more cases have been heard than the Scottish Government anticipated. When it works, it sounds like it works pretty well. You know, there's a, there's a, so in short, the tribunal system works on, um, on a, a multi-person panel. So you have a housing expert, you have a lay person, you have a legal person. And I know, I've heard from, from landlords who let and have had to use the system in, in Scotland that actually having that, that lay person on a tribunal can be really helpful. It's, it's almost a bit of empathy. They understand in the real world what they might be going through. Um, but it, there are some similar problems. There is still the problem of getting a date. There is still the problem of, of jumping through the hoops that you might need to jump through. Um, and there isn't a no-fault um, process anymore in Scotland. So you do have to justify your reason. So just like down here, it's normally rent arrears. You've got to make sure that you are approaching it properly, professionally, and, um, and evidencing. You know, on that basis, it seems to work okay. But you'd need something on um, scale of, of, of an order of magnitude bigger in England to make it work. And as you say, um, uh, reforming the court system here in England is, isn't, is barely mentioned in the consultation, so it doesn't yeah. give us much. There's, <laughs> there's a footnote that says, you know, we'd like to look at this, give us some thoughts. I mean, interesting that that's one of the, the areas that we asked Capital Economics to look at in this report. So we wanted them to model what the impact would be of, of this proposal going through, of taking away Section 21. But we also wanted them to, to set out a few scenarios for us. So worst case scenario, best case scenario, scenario with some mitigations. And the main mitigation that landlords told us they'd like to see is fixing the courts. What would your what would your view be on this or what would the practical impact of this change be if we had a specialised housing court? And you know it doesn't fix all the problems. People still want to have certainty they can get the, their property back when things go wrong. But it did it did mitigate to a greater or lesser extent the, the, the concerns and the worries landlords had for about half of the sample. So there are a lot of people there saying, okay, I'm not entirely sure I know what a housing court looks like, but in theory, if we get one and it works, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't feel the need for Section 21 as much. Mm. Now, that's a big step, and it's a step into the dark. And what we've said to the government, irrespective of the consultation, is if you insist on doing this, firstly, please don't, but if you insist on doing this, get the sequencing right. Mm. Fix the mechanism, get the court in place, then sort out Section 8, and if all that's working smoothly, you know, if you have to, withdraw Section 21. Mm-hmm. And actually, by that point, most landlords will probably be thinking, well, the rest of it works pretty well. Why should I care? Absolutely, yes. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Just before we come on to the report, I just wanted to ask about whether you think changes in government mean that this Section 21 consultation will ever come to anything, because, of course, it was brought in by uh, James Brokenshire, who was Secretary of State then, Heather Wheeler was one of the uh, housing ministers, Theresa May was Prime Minister at the time. They've all been swept away. Um, People see Boris Johnson as more free market, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. You could argue that uh, he, he changes according to whatever's going on uh, that day. But, um, you know, do you think we're less likely to get the abolition of Section 21 now we've had this change in, in the Tory leadership? Oh, it, it's an odds game. Um, I mean, obviously, as you say, this was published when Theresa May was in number 10. Um, we were led to believe in all the conversations we had with her special advisers and her office in the cabinet office that this was was something that she and her team were very keen to pursue and certainly there was a particular special advisor in number 10 at the time that was trying to pull the levers and he has gone of course Toby Toby Lloyd went the day that Theresa May went as special advisers often do you know that's that's their their time done 
Um, and since then, I, I would say it's been a little rudderless. There is definitely a team at MHCLG, the, the housing department, pushing on with this and pushing on with the consultation. Um, we were a little surprised the consultation was published um, because it was published, I forget the date exactly, but only a few days or a week before Theresa May left office. Um, we thought it might quietly be pushed onto the back burner, and obviously it hasn't been. Um, I mean, I, I, when, when Theresa May left office, I thought there was probably a 70-30 chance that this would all go ahead. I, my gut feeling now is we're closer to 50-50. I mean, something will happen. This is, this is too big a, a political potential goal for the government not to do something. But a consultation does give them the flexibility to change their mind a bit and perhaps show some of their, their blue Conservative roots. You know, we'd like them to. This is the reason we're launching this report at the Conservative Party conference, to try and remind them that actually they've been a party that's encouraged individuals to become landlords, to invest in property, to invest for their future, to be self-reliant. And now it just seems like the last, let's call it the last couple of Conservative governments, because there's been a few leaders now, um, have been pulling that rug away. So you know, we, will, we will push this report, we'll push all of the, um, all of the research we've done and encourage our members to really keep engaging because they've been fantastic over this, you know, writing our postcards, um, attending workshops with our policy team, responding to the consultation. You know, the more that those voices can be heard, the less likely I think it is to happen. Um, you know, I wish I could guarantee that it wouldn't, and I'm naturally a cynic, but you know, there is a chance now. There's little to be positive about, of course, with uh, Labour Party and Lib Dem policy because both policies have now said that they want to abolish Section 21. They have, they have. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm of the opinion that this is, you know, this is something that is potentially such a populist win for political parties in the short term. I mean, I, I don't think any of the parties are actually looking at the long term and the housing need element. But in terms of you know, the, the simple electoral calculus, you know, there are 11 million private renters, there are possibly 2 million private landlords. Looking at the constituencies they've got to win... You know, the, the more affluent, leafy uh, constituencies that it's assumed landlords are in. We know that that's not always the case. You know, landlords are as spread as any other group in society. But you know, they're looking at this and thinking, you know, being on the side of the tenant could really help me. I could make, I could make up votes. I could win more seats. So they're, they're going to go for that. You know, my, my feeling on behalf of the NLA and all of the research we do is actually you know, introduce this, give it two years and see what's happened to housing supply. And they may well be backtracking but I'd much rather we don't have all the pain of the next couple of years um, if parties are determined to do it. The report starts by talking about the number of landlords um, in the UK, and it could be anything from 2.2 million to 2.8 million. It says it's very difficult to estimate, isn't it? It is. Um, It talks about the piecemeal legislation that we've had over the last few years, and it says that that's been brought in rather than introducing a new model. It also outlines the current Section 8 and Section 21 possession processes and and has quite a few stats around who's using which type of process. Um, Interestingly, the report says that private rented sector dwellings in England have fallen by 46,000 in 2017, and that's the first fall since 1999. Yeah. So what's causing that then, Chris? Is that it, the obvious kind of Section 24 finance changes? I mean, that, that's the suspicion. I mean, all of this is inference. The, the, the fall that we see is based on the government's own surveys. So, you know, they do this regular English housing survey to look at 10 years and what people are living in. And as you say, it's the first drop, and a really significant drop, in, in 20 years. It would seem like too much of a coincidence to see 
the Section 24 changes to interest relief, the SDLT change, you know, the various little bits of regulatory change that have chipped away at landlords over the last you know, probably 10 years or so, and not say that's having an impact. Now, of course, various governments will say, well, that's what we wanted. You know, isn't that good? It's, it's working. And priced out would say that first-time buyers will snap those properties up, and of course we know there are arguments against yeah, that as well. well. I'd love to see their stats to say if they are, because certainly when you talk to, to UK finance, um, who, who monitor mortgages, what we're seeing is a lot of redemptions. We're not necessarily seeing a lot of first-time buyers. And I think what's going to be really interesting looking at it now, and this is getting off slightly why it's changed, but what will happen in the future is you know, we've, got, we've got politicians talking a lot about trying to release that stock and let first-time buyers buy it up. But actually, if you look at what's happened to the pound, you look at how cheap it is for overseas investors to get in. Now, it could be the reason we're seeing lots of redemptions in mortgages and not the same volume of new lending is actually because that money is coming in from other countries. Mm-hmm. And they're being snapped up, and let's, let's hope it's not buy to leave. But potentially we're just seeing landlords who don't have access to the wonderful resources of the NLA, you know, don't necessarily have the same kind of connection to the local area that private landlords tend to. And we could see a deterioration of, of what we've got at the moment. So you know, the government perhaps have got their wish, but they've also got a lot of unintended consequences. Well, some of the other unintended consequences the report says could be that uh, 43% of landlords in, in the survey that the report carried out um, would be more selective, or they said they would be yeah. more selective in terms of the tenants that they would take. We know already that uh, only something between 16 and 20% of landlords will take tenants on benefits now. So that must be worrying for the government. I really hope it is. I really hope it's getting through because it's very worrying to me. and It's very worrying to us when we're doing work on this. Um, you know, it's reassuring in a way. Whenever you do this kind of research, you worry that you're going to get a massive knee-jerk reaction back from, from your members and, they're gonna, and it's going to therefore be dismissed. You know, everyone is going to sell Armageddon, the sky is falling. Actually, what we've got here is a really considered and professional response from the landlord community. They're saying, no, I've still got an investment. It's still better than a lot of investments. But I can't afford to take people who look like a, let's not say a bad risk, but a, a higher potential risk of default at some point. And that does mean at the moment, I mean, you say 16 to 20% is absolutely right. But if you look at London, it's more like 10%. Mm. And again, if you put the risk of a default against the high London house price, nobody is going to take that. If you've got no means to end the tenancy if it goes wrong, why would you take that risk when you've got potential other marketplace out there? So I I think if, if the government is serious about wanting to use the private rented sector to house, you know, all different types of household, then they simply can't take away the safety net that landlords have got. Um, now, fine, if they turn around and say we're building 500,000 social homes next year, okay, that, that's a policy package. But I would be incredibly surprised <laughs> if that's what comes out of the government. Well, the government has poor form as well in terms of um, tenants on benefits mm. because the total welfare cap has, has created lots of problems for families with two children or more, and yet the, the government has... has done very little to, to mitigate that, of course. Um, now, 16% of landlords said that they would exit. Um, 10% said they would reduce the size of their portfolio. Some landlords also said they'd need to increase their rents to cover the additional tax burden and also the additional costs of potentially having to evict people through the Section 8 process. Yeah, This is the flip side of that, of that message we were talking about a moment ago, people being happy that landlords are selling off. You, know, you can you can see the logic behind an argument that if a landlord sells, someone else has to buy. 
you know, it's not disappearing from the marketplace. But what you're not looking at with that argument is what happens to the rest of the market. If a landlord with 300 properties in a market town somewhere decides to sell them all, you know, okay, some of those will be snapped up, but everyone else who's left needing to rent faces the consequences. They face reduced supply, their demand remains the same, you know, prices will go up. I think we see here 12 or 13% of, of landlords will need to increase rents to cover this off. And this is, you know, this is the aggregate. This is on top of the removal of interest rate relief. It's on top of you know, all, the, um, all the other compliance costs that landlords are going to face now. On top of needs, I mean, one of the things that I think is silently sneaking up on us along with this is energy efficiency. You know, the number of properties next year or number of tenancies that won't be able to continue unless you spend £3,500 on that property. We're back to that old story of the lack of joined-up thinking, aren't Definitely. we? <laughs> and uh, who knows when we'll get a government that joins up all of these policies and makes the connections. <laughs> um, so the three main impacts that the report talks about on government proposals um, around abolishing Section 21 are that England's private rented sector could lose one-fifth of its dwellings, private rented housing availability for claimants could more than halve, and 12% of England's dwellings could see rent increases. You couldn't make it up, could you? Um, you know, that, and the interesting thing is, if you read the report, that's not the worst-case scenario. That, that's the Conservative with a small c um, outlook. If you look at the worst-case scenario, it, it's, it's Armageddon. Um, I mean, I've, we've, been, you know, we've been doing a lot of promotion, obviously, for this report, getting ready for the, for the launch. You know, I am amazed that we have a government at the moment that will even countenance a policy that could see almost a million dwellings taken out of a market when there's a housing shortage. Now, OK, detractors will say, well, the houses are still there, someone has to live in them. But what happens to the households that are in those dwellings? You know, does everyone want to be shifted around one? Is it simply open the door and move to your next door property? No, of course it's not. You know, there's going to be homelessness there. There's going to be rising cost. Somebody's going to have to pick it up. And we all know that, frankly, it's the bottom of the market. It's the part of the market that we don't like to talk about a great deal that ends up profiting from this. So, I mean, it's, it's utterly shocking. It seems, and maybe I'm being cynical, but it seems like the soundbite is more important than the housing outcome. And they're certainly getting a lot of soundbites from it. Isn't one of the problems, though, Chris, that we have housing charities, people like Generation Rent, etc., those sorts of campaign groups that will say, we'd be happy to see these landlords leave the market. Mm-hmm. We think it's grotesque that people are profiting from property in this way. Yeah. Um, we need to see a radical shift. And if there are some difficulties on the way, then so be it. I mean, obviously they're entitled their opinion you know there are some things that the likes of shelter or crisis will say that I agree with wholeheartedly you know when it comes to quality and property standards there's a lot of common ground um, I think it's what you're prepared to see how much hardship you're prepared to see on the road to getting to where you want to be you know, if you have a joined up package of solutions then I'm happy to debate that if you've simply if you've simply got a narrative that points out the problems then I've got less time for you and I think you know, sometimes when we talk to, to charities like that, they do. They've, they've got a, a fantastic package that if you could introduce everything and do it in the right order and do it in the right manner, okay. You know, I, I think there's a role for private landlords to play there. There's a role for social housing to play there. If you're, and I won't name particular bodies, but if you're one of the others that tends to be a little bit more radical, um, you know, all you want to do is blame. And there's a lot of blame for landlords, but I guarantee that if landlords are driven out of the market, we'll be blamed for the homelessness as well. Mm. 
and you know certainly I don't think that sounds fair. No, and I heard somebody say the other day that they thought that um, people on the hard left are propagating too much kind of anti-landlord dogma at the moment, and quite a lot of that is being is finding its way into um, the Labour Party policy. Mm. Yeah, I don't think you've got to go very far in, in the high echelons of the Labour Party to find people who dislike private landlords um, <laughs> and dislike even private ownership of some assets. I mean, I, I shouldn't get carried away. The NLA is completely apolitical. We will sit down and talk with any party in power or in opposition to try and get the best outcome for, for landlords. But there's quite a bit of nastiness around, isn't there, at the moment? There, there is, oh, in politics, full stop. There is nasty. But anti-landlord nastiness. There is, there is. I mean, if you look at if you look at Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, you know, I'm, I'm always fond of saying the NLA, prior to Jeremy Corbyn becoming um, leader, the NLA met him pretty much every year because he brought back the same private members' bill that was really anti-landlord. I mean, he did want to introduce rent capping and rent control, and I mean, frankly, I'm not even sure he stopped short of seizure of property. But you know, very a very you know, traditionally left-wing um, policy. Um, but at least he was thinking about it. And actually, my local CLP, Constituency Labour Party, put forward a motion to conference this year that landlords' property should be seized. Yeah. You know, so this is local Labour Party members. The, the Labour Housing Group has always been very, very left-wing, um, which you know, it might not sound surprising, but you know, a, a political party is a broad church, and then there's all different bits in there. I think, as you've rightly identified, the danger of them is they get more traction. If you look at, if you look at the, the new Labour Days, whatever your views on that, you know, some people look back fondly, some don't. Um, you know, the the um, the, the Labour Housing Group you know, had a role to play, but it was moderated. I think the danger at the moment is it may not be moderated. Um, and you know, we've seen there are certain groups within the Labour Party that will push their own agenda. Um, it's really interesting at the moment seeing the talk about putting Jeremy Corbyn in as an interim Prime Minister. And I mean, my question would be: well, firstly, how long is interim? It's a slight concern. Um, but what does that actually give them the opportunity to do? Because yes. I'd, I'd hope it's simply bring about a general election. If that's going to happen, let's let's not let their agenda creep in. I suspect that's all the Lib Dems and the SNP would allow. No, I suspect so. Yes, and I hear a lot of landlords telling me that they feel politically homeless at the moment because it seems all of the parties have a bit of an anti-landlord agenda. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with them. Yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure where you go at the moment. I mean, if you look to, if you look back to, to 2015, the last normal election, I suppose we had, um, you know, there were there were certainly voices in the Conservative Party that wanted to do more. We'd already seen um, the the Section 24 changes, so you know there was a, a, a desperate run, a desperate movement away from from voting Conservative and a lot of a lot of, um, a lot of um, landlords in. Manifesto terms, the Lib Dems still looked relatively safe at that point, but obviously they were discredited by, by the coalition days. Um, there are very few landlords that really think Jeremy Corbyn is an ally. I, I would say there certainly are some. The polling we do, there's still some Labour voting landlords. Um, and there are a lot, obviously, that are voting along Brexit lines, um, just like the rest of the population. You know, landlords are exactly the same as everybody else. Some you know, view that as the most important issue. Um, but there's like there is nowhere else to go. Um, what I would say is this is maybe the opportunity to talk to your candidates. If we do have an election like we expect we will in the next weeks or months, you know, this is really the opportunity because we're gonna have a lot of new candidates standing to, to make your point. You know, point out how important you and landlord colleagues are to the local community, how many homes you provide, how damaging the, the narrative of the last couple of years has been. 
I suspect you'd probably get a little bit further with Conservative and Liberal candidates than you would with Labour candidates, but mm. you know they have a duty to represent you. And we need to remember that uh, politicians often just hear uh, negative stories about the PRS because of people who go and speak to them at their surgeries, etc. So it's important they hear more positive stories. It is, and one of the really important things we, we're releasing alongside this report is a case study report. So as well as as well as explaining why Section 21 is so important, we've tried to put a face to that. We've got a number of landlords who very generously donated their time to uh, to tell us about their experience. And you know what? There's some real shockers in there. You know, some of them are really awful circumstances that they've faced with tenants that they couldn't end the tenancy any other way. Um, others just are the really unusual things that you wouldn't expect to come up. You know, you, we all know about rent arrears and need to sell, but just other things that wouldn't normally cross the desk of an MP. So pointing that out, you know, pointing them towards the NLA will certainly tell them what they need to know. Well, obviously you'll be fighting members of the corner at the Conservative Party conference. The plan. And, uh, and uh, if you'd like to read the full report, then it's available on the NLA website. That's it for this podcast. We'd be very interested to hear any thoughts or experiences you'd like to share. You can tweet us at at National Landlord or comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash National Landlord. And you can also catch up with previous editions on iTunes or via the news and campaigns section of the NLA website, which of course is landlords.org.uk. My thanks to my guest, Chris Norris from the NLA and to you for listening.